You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan. In Stouffville. In Woodbridge. In Unionville. Welcome to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. This is York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up, Offside, One Woman's Hockey Journey, The Doctor Becomes the Patient, and a look ahead to International Women's Day. But first, know your vaccines. There are now three vaccines that have been approved by Health Canada, many of which are making their way into people's arms as we speak. Each vaccine is very different in composition, efficacy, and even in the way it's stored. Here to give us Everything we might want to and definitely need to know about the vaccines is Dr. Samantha Hill, president of the Ontario Medical Association. You're at the hospital right now. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me on the air again. So we have three that have been approved, Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca just recently. Let's talk about what each of those provides in terms of efficacy. Fair enough. So let's even take a step back from that, if you don't mind, and say that there are six or seven different types of vaccines currently undergoing research. And the ones that we have approved in Canada currently fall under one of two categories, either the mRNA vaccine type, which is an example for that would be Pfizer or Moderna, or what we call a non-replicating viral vector. And that sounds scary, but it isn't. And that would be the AstraZeneca. And the reason I say that is because there actually is a fourth vaccine coming down the line, has been approved in the United States and was likely to be approved here soon, and that would be the J&J or the Janssen vaccine. So if that information comes out tomorrow or the day after, I don't want your listeners feeling like they suddenly are missing a big gap of information. So what I understand is that Pfizer is 95% effective, uh, Moderna 94.1%, AstraZeneca 62%, and we're hearing that J&J, Johnson & Johnson, could be 66%. Uh, in terms of efficacy. So what does that mean? What is it preventing uh, COVID-19? Is it uh, setting up a, a situation where the effects of the virus are lessened by the, the vaccination? So it's a great question because those numbers sound very different and I could see how that would make people concerned. But what all we can really say about those numbers is that all three of the vaccines, and the fourth, Janssen and Janssen as well, have been demonstrated to be effective and to be safe. You can't actually compare those numbers one to the other because the studies were done in different places at different times on different populations. And so we can't say that one vaccine is more effective than the other. What we can say, if you look at those numbers, is that if you get that vaccine, you are that much more protected than the people who did not get that vaccine. And so what that means is dependent on the study that was done, it may be less likely to have any kind of the virus, less likely to have a severe manifestation of the virus, or even less likely to be hospitalized because of the virus. And so you do have to take a look at the individual studies to know exactly what those numbers mean. But at the end of the day, all your listeners need to know, all we all need to know, is that if we get a vaccine, it's a good thing. So I was reading about Johnson & Johnson, a 66% effective in staving off moderate to severe illness, 85% effective in preventing the most serious outcomes, which, to my mind, means death. Uh, what do you say about those uh, statistics? 
Absolutely. And if you look at that paper, it also says nearly 100% effective for saving off the worst of the worst, which is admissions to the ICU, mechanical ventilation, and something called ECMO requirement. And again, what that says to me is that that is exciting data of another vaccine that is likely to be effective and safe and can be added to our armamentarium to protect Canadians and Ontarians. Let's talk about doses of each COVID-19 vaccine required. It seems that right across the board, those that have been approved, Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca, we're talking about two. What are you seeing in terms of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? Great, thank you. So what we're seeing is that Johnson & Johnson actually has a recommendation for a single-dose vaccine or a second dose given approximately two months later. And with that single dose is how they've shown efficacy that we've already discussed. Now, what's important to remember is that the other schedules don't imply that a single vaccine won't be effective. They simply tell us how the studies were done. And so as scientists, we don't guess and we don't um, assume. So if the study was done based on two doses, that's what we recommend and that's what we try to adhere to. However, we're obviously in a really challenging position where there simply has not been enough supply to vaccinate everyone. And in fact, there hasn't even been enough supply to vaccinate everyone who is at highest risk. So the question then becomes, as a measure of public health, whether or not you have more benefit to the population as a whole by delaying that second dose while everyone gets a first dose. And that is a question that is being hotly debated by my peers and colleagues at NACI, at Health Canada, and in a variety of public health units, I'm sure. And some provinces, British Columbia, for instance, they are uh, hoping to delay by four months uh, that second shot. Absolutely. And it's a very challenging decision for people to make. And the people who are making those decisions are usually infectious disease and public health experts. And they're doing so in a way that allows them to try and maximize the benefit to the population. Uh, It's important to remember, though, that B.C. is a very different province than Ontario. In fact, one of the biggest strengths of Ontario's rollout at the moment is that it is powered or um, rolled out by public health units, and that allows the individual units to take into account the local community, the local challenges, the local advantages, to really maximize the uptake and the efficacy of the vaccines available to them. But the same ways we couldn't compare the cohort of Thunder Bay to the cohort of Hamilton, we can't compare to um, Ontario to BC. So, Dr. Hill, can you break down who should be receiving the COVID-19 vaccine in terms of its maker, Pfizer, Moderna, and AstraZeneca at this point? I'd love to. And the most important piece of information to that is anyone who is offered the vaccine should be receiving the vaccine. But what you're getting at, I believe, is the question of ages and pregnancy and the data that we have available. And so what I can say with certainty is that the Pfizer vaccine has been authorized for ages 16 and older, whereas Moderna and AstraZeneca have been authorized for ages 18 and older. When we look at the question of children, um, there are suggestions of plans to look at lots of different age groups, but we don't currently have that evidence for most of the vaccines. Finally, there's always the question about pregnant women, and we are currently in the process of accumulating lots of observational data on pregnant women, but we need to remember that there are massive limitations to observational data, and that it isn't the same as a randomized control trial. That being said, Moderna and Pfizer have shared their data, 
And there seems to be no contraindications for the adenovirus vaccine, for the AstraZeneca vaccine. We currently don't have any observational data available. We are hearing rumblings that uh, people over 65 should not receive the AstraZeneca vaccine. What do you know? So the questions or the rumblings about the AstraZeneca vaccine are founded around simply a lack of data. But at present, the AstraZeneca vaccine is indicated and authorized for use in people above the age of 65. If you are over the age of 65, you are at high risk of complications from COVID, and the vaccine is likely to offer you far more protection than it is to cause any kind of serious adverse event. How do we protect our children if they're not able to receive the vaccine? Pfizer, you must be 16 and older, Moderna and AstraZeneca 18 plus. How do we protect our young ones? Well, we start by reducing the prevalence within the society, and we do that by all the things that we've been doing up until now. So washing our hands, wearing our masks, and staying away from other people and trying to maintain that kind of physical social distancing. That being said, there will be data for children soon. We're just waiting for that to come out. Health Canada has recommended that we need to look at the different age groups. They've also recommended that we need to look at different marginalized groups to make sure that there are no concerns. From a physiologic point of view, I don't foresee there being anything that is a contraindication. But as always, that would be an assumption, and we look for the evidence first. Let's talk about the number of doses that Canada is receiving, has purchased, or has uh, put an earmark on for the future. Pfizer, at this point, 40 million doses. Moderna, 40 million doses. AstraZeneca, 20 million. If J&J is approved soon, 10 million with an option for an additional 28 million. Is that enough? Well, it'll all depend on the uptake of the vaccine, and it also depends on whether or not we wind up having to do this again in six months or in a year, or if one vaccine... Uh, gets us through the pandemic and it doesn't recur. What I think is most interesting to note is that the Janssen and Janssen, sorry, the J&J or the Janssen pharmaceutical vaccine only needs one dose. And so that 38 or 40 million doses is actually almost four times as much or can can provide four times as many people with protection as any of the other three, assuming, of course, that it gets uh approved and we can use it here. What is the OMA's position on whether we should have a choice of which vaccine we want in our arms? Well, the OMA's position is always that people should have choice, but the really important thing is that the really important thing is that as many people as possible get vaccinated as quickly as possible. And that's going to require clear guidelines that enable provincial and local governments to plan ahead on vaccine distribution efforts. The main thing that the individual folk of Ontario need to remember is that these conversations will continue to come up and these discussions will continue to come up. We will likely see more vaccines become available and we will likely hear more details about concerns or uh, pleasant surprises. But when your turn comes up, you should get vaccinated with whichever vaccine has been made available to you and has been deemed safe. Because while in a perfect world, you might prefer one or the other, right now our choices are vaccinated or not vaccinated. And these vaccines work. They're best hope for overcoming the pandemic. And they have all been rigorously tested and they are all safe. So, Health Canada's chief medical advisor has said very much what you have just said, that, quote, the best vaccine for an individual is the one you can get. That's Dr. Supriya Sharma. What are your thoughts then 
as far as people booking for their vaccination and moving forward and getting it done? I think it's extremely exciting that we're moving on to this next phase of vaccine rollout where more people are going to have access to it and more people are going to be protected. There are a lot of conversations going on, including how long we can delay the second dose and if we can at all, including the conversation around AstraZeneca and elderly patients, including, as we've referenced, the conversations around pregnant women and the conversations around children. These conversations will continue, and the reason they will continue is because Health Canada and NACI do an amazing job of surveilling the data. And what that means is any adverse event following an immunization gets shared either with Health Canada through Canada Vigilance or through the local public health unit through something called CAFIS, Canadian Adverse Events Following Immunization Surveillance System. And then they share that information. And the people in charge of our safety are looking at this data daily to make sure that there's nothing concerning and there's nothing that is dangerous for people. So in addition to the randomized trials that have had to precede any vaccine rollout, there is daily um, accumulation and collation of data to ensure that the public is safe. And so I'm excited to see that the mass vaccination sites are rolling out. I'm excited to have heard from General Hillier that family doctors will be mobilized and utilized in making sure that we gain access to all of our patients. We know that family doctors have a key role to play both in their infrastructure and also in their relationships with patients to make sure that questions are answered, people are comfortable, and vaccines get into the arm. So there is great concern about the variant, and and there are various variants out there. Are the Three vaccines that are approved right now by Health Canada, are they effective in warding off the new strains of COVID-19? So short answer is yes. All of the approved vaccines have demonstrated efficacy and effectiveness against the new variants. The thing to remember about the new variants is that while they sound scary, they are just viruses doing what viruses do, which is mutating to try and improve their survival. We, of course, don't want that to happen. So all of the measures that we've taken up until now to protect us from the original strain are still effective. Keeping a distance from other people, limiting contact to your household members, washing your hands, wearing a mask to protect others and yourself when necessary. These are all key measures. And, of course, our public health units have an amazing role to play in contact tracing and testing for these variants. The concern amongst the variants isn't that they are intrinsically more dangerous than any other variant or than the original strains. It's simply that they seem to be more contagious. And from a public health point of view, from a Canada-wide point of view, if something is more contagious, it means that there will be more people getting sick. And if there are more people getting sick, it means there will be more people needing acute care, hospital care, those kinds of things. And so... It is dangerous from a system perspective, which is why we have the lockdown that some of us are still trying to get out from under, but it is not any more intrinsically dangerous for an individual. And I think that's important to remember if you happen to be sick or if you happen to be worrying about it. In a nutshell, is it the Ontario Medical Association's position that everyone who can should be vaccinated? Absolutely. In a nutshell, we would encourage every single person to receive the vaccine as soon as they can. 
I want to thank you for helping us to get to know your vaccines. <laughs> Dr. Samantha Hill, president of the Ontario Medical Association, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me on the air and trying to clarify some of these really complicated issues. Next on the feed, stick handling her way through the game. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. It continues to be a real juggling act for women during this pandemic. Tina Cortez with a revealing survey. Carissa Lecrutiano is Vice President, CIBC Financial and Investment Advice. Thank you for your time, Carissa. Thank you so much, Tina, for having me today. So could you share with us the findings of the CIBC survey and how women fared during the pandemic? Absolutely. So women definitely have heavier shoulders from carrying their families through the last year of the COVID-19 pandemic. And our CIBC survey finds that through this past year, where the new norm was working and attending school from home, Canadian women are challenged by balancing a large set of priorities and responsibilities, and specifically around three areas, childcare, their own careers, and taking care of their family finances. So if we talk specifically about the household responsibilities, where are women taking the lead there? Yes, and what the findings are is that the majority of household duties and responsibilities lie with women. And just to give some few interesting stats, um, supervising schoolwork for children, 65% of women uh, feel responsible for this. 60% of women are responsible for childcare, meal preparation, 67% cleaning 66% and groceries 64%. So the list goes on and on, but what is really apparent is that it is a full-time job to care for the home front, especially through these challenging times. And in addition, also women are working, many women are working from home, and that's adding to, uh, to the stress and the responsibilities. So while women are focusing on household finances, planning for their families, are personal finances then being neglected? Yeah, significantly. Mm -hmm. And so if we look at some of our findings as well, quite interesting, it's 38% of women don't have an investment portfolio. And so if you think about that for a moment, that means that almost 40% of Canadian women are not participating in the opportunity for market growth on their financial future, their investments. Only 17% of women have a clear plan for retirement. And there are a few fundamental components of a retirement plan for one to feel really confident and comfortable. And if I break it down into three areas, it's really, you know, time to reflect on your goals and vision for retirement. So what do you want to do in retirement? What does that look like? Identifying income needed to fund retirement. So how much is it going to cost based on goals and things that you want to achieve? And then last, but definitely very, very important, is implementing that plan. So investing in the future to obtain those goals and that vision that you have. So what our survey finds and, and what it states is that uh, a little over 80% of Canadian women have not done this, which leads to another interesting fact that 25% of women don't know how much they need to save to feel secure. And that is, you know, from a short-term perspective, whether it is an emergency fund saving for a rainy day to, you know, overall finances and, and planning for the future. 
Okay, so how do you plan for the future? How do you plan for retirement when so much seems unusual or unstable these days? Absolutely. So, you know, what these findings are telling us is something really important, that there is a huge opportunity to change these realities to more to more of a positive territory. In order to break the trend of some of the details that I mentioned, women need to feel confident and they need to feel really comfortable about their financial future. So two areas that I would recommend to focus on is really plan for your future. It is never too late. And you need to really take the time to assess goals. And that could be just simply writing it down on a blank piece of paper or typing it on, you know, a, a smartphone or what have you. Just start thinking about what are the goals that you really want to uh, attain in a short period of time, maybe the next few years, and then longer term. And start small. And also start the conversation. It doesn't have to be everything all at once. I'd also say seek advice from a professional is really, really important. Uh, at CIBC, we have a team of advisors that can support you. And ask lots and lots of questions. A financial plan and your financial future is a journey that is going to move and mold with the changes in your life. And it's exciting to be able to put that plan into place. I would also say just as important as finances is also well-being. And at CIBC, we talk a lot about the four pillars of well-being, which is mind, body, life, and finances. And as I mentioned, in addition to finances, these other elements are so important because if we look at you know, some of our survey stats, it also suggests that due to the pandemic, there's been a real decline in mental health. And this has really affected women significantly in areas of feeling isolated and specifically lack of physical activity. So even if it is carving out, you know, 10, 15 minutes a day to go for that walk or carving out 20 minutes a week to connect with that friend or loved one, it will really make a difference within your, your well-being. And focusing on those two elements will really ensure that there's some goals put in place and a focus on the future. Well, Carissa, you shared a great deal of information there. Let's take a deeper dive into some of those areas, including the financial plan. You said you can start small. It is possible then to just put away a little something a little bit at a time, and it will pay off in the long run, right? Absolutely. So, you know, whether whether it's a small amount, uh, whatever, it, whatever it is, depending on personal circumstances, what's really important to get started is really looking at your cash flow, which is your income and expenses, and understanding, you know, what are, what's coming in and what's going out, and carving out, you know, even a small amount to put away on a monthly basis, uh, for example, will really help in the long run. And when you put that amount away, whatever that is, depending on your personal circumstances, you learn to live without it, and you learn to budget, and you learn to go on your day-to-day expenses without it. And, you know, Looking back a year, two years, three years, you'll realize that you'll have started a really nice nest egg. So absolutely, you can start small, um, but start today, and it's never too late. You also talked about your well-being beyond your finances. And I have to say, it's a bit unusual to hear someone from the banking industry talk about something other than the finances. Where does the mental health and the well-being fit into the larger plan? Yeah, so as I mentioned, just as important as finances is the well-being. So when you're feeling great, you're feeling confident, you're feeling comfortable, uh, everything comes into place. And that, that also has an effect on your finances. So if you're feeling organized, if you're feeling that you're in good shape, you're more prepared to have some great conversations around setting some goals. 
So, you know, we, uh, we're very, very passionate about well-being at CIBC. It's a cornerstone not only internally for our employees, but also externally for our clients is really ensuring that, that everyone focuses on taking that time and really focusing on, on their own well-being because that is the start of really putting a good plan in place. As women, how do we balance both then our household responsibilities and our financial well-being? Yeah, and I think it goes back to what I, I mentioned a bit earlier and taking it into small chunks mm-hmm. is sometimes you may feel overwhelmed with, a, you know, a daunting task or thinking that something is, is very overwhelming or very time-consuming, like putting a financial plan together. But I would say really starting small and, and starting today on, on the financial piece and making sure that, you know, even if it is starting the conversation, talk to your advisor, Start thinking about what your goals are for the future. Again, it could be setting up an RESP for your child. It could be setting up a vacation fund for when the pandemic is done and we can all enjoy a nice vacation. Or it could be starting to think about, you know, that retirement plan. Is it, you know, a cottage that you want to retire to six months of the year? Uh, So those types of things, you know, starting small and starting with some reflection, I think is very important. And then on the home front, you know, that's, that's a tough one. And it's something that is, as I mentioned, has been a really big challenge for women, especially over the last year. But uh, some of the things I mentioned around, you know, um, reaching out to friends and family, asking for help, and as well, you know, thinking about, you know, what are the core responsibilities and the core priorities that you, that you need to do? Because as women, we love to take on, uh, you know, uh, responsibilities. We're really great at multitasking. And sometimes, you know, we, we don't take enough time for ourselves. And that's where the well-being piece comes in. So when you have a healthy mind, uh, body, and life, um, everything else comes into play just as well as finances. Just before we wrap up, well, how are you celebrating and marking International Women's Day on Monday? Yeah, to celebrate International Women's Day, I will be hosting a live webinar, and it's called Leading with Strength and Resilience. And this is to support women's financial well-being, and also I will provide insights on navigating uncertain times. Um, you can follow me on LinkedIn at Carissa Lucreziano, where you'll find the invite. As well, the invite is on CIBC.com. It is free, so uh, I'm hoping that, uh, you know, we can have a lot of um, individuals join. And, you know, I've invited some very inspiring women to share their journey, so I invite you to join me on March 8th from 2 to 3 p.m. for our live webinar. And there will also be a replay for those that can't join live. And, Carissa, one more time, where can we find the link to that live webinar? The live webinar will be available on CIBC.com, as well as on my LinkedIn page at Carissa Lucreziano. Thank you for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much, Tina. Have a wonderful day. She shoots, she scores, and sometimes she's offside. Jim Lang with the highlights. As we focus on the feed of International Women's Day, we just take a look at some women in this country who have made a huge difference in sports and hockey. And I can't think of anyone more fitting than Newmarket's Rhonda Lehman Taylor, originally from Kingston, with a resume most of us would dream of, including going to Queen's University, getting a degree, playing hockey at Queen's University, being part of the Ontario Hockey Development Committee, and on and on and on it goes. And she joins us on the feed. Rhonda, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, obviously, hockey's in your blood. What 
especially at the time, in the late 60s, early 70s, women getting into hockey was not a common thing. What made hockey such a passion for you and drew you to the game? Well, you know, I grew up in a large family. I had, there were seven kids in our family. Um, my parents bought a big old home um, right by a park. And the park had a rink. We always, we always said that my parents bought the house because with the house came a babysitter, which was the park. <laughs> and at the park, um, the rink, the really nice rink was always used for scrimmage hockey. So if you wanted to skate on the really nice rink that was, you know, flooded properly, you had to go out and play the game. And I had two brothers ahead of me who were, were really quite uh, good players. Um, they never got to the pro level, but my one brother did play with Denny Kearns and Silaps Jr. So he was, he, was, he, was, he was fairly high up in, in, in his skill development. And I like to think that, you know, they taught me a lot and it rubbed off on me as, as I grew up. And, and playing at the park, uh, I... You know, I was a rink rat. I lived, I lived in, I, I lived in my skates. You know, go, going home at noon hour, um, we used to crawl across the the streets of Kingston on our hands and knees so we wouldn't ruin our blades, <laughs> and walk the snowbanks so we could walk, walk, get into the house, walk on cardboard, um, the floors. My mom would cover with cardboard, and we'd sit down, and eat our soup and sandwich, and you know, off we'd go back to the rink. Um, it, it, was, it truly was a babysitter. Well, you, you were the author of a book called Offside, The Challenges Faced by Women in Hockey, and you also have a great website, blog site, and one of the photos of your days playing at Queen's University in the mid-'70s, it's an awesome photo, and obviously you, you were one of the trailblazers. There was no Team Canada winning the Olympics in Salt Lake City and other Olympics without people like you, Rhonda. Uh, and and that's... And that's the history that has really uh, never been told before, and that's why I wrote my book. And and with that came challenges. You know, um, you know, who knows? I might still be working in in hockey today um, if I didn't have a man who propositioned me, and I sort of respected the man, and I laughed at him. You know, I couldn't believe he propositioned me, and then the next thing was. The next thing I knew, you know, my contract was coming to an end, you know. Um, um, but, you know, those were just some of the obstacles that, that women had to, had to, had to face. And financial, financial, and believe me, Jim, there are players back then who are as good as the national players today. And because um, statistics were never kept, they will never be known. The, the, the history books will not be writing about them, which is really sad. No, it really is, Rhonda. And unfortunately, I do believe you 100%. But it, it always starts with someone, a visionary. And in 82, talk about a visionary in setting the groundwork for future women's hockey for decades to come. You were one of the organizers for the first Women's Canadian National Hockey Tournament with great photos of loading up SUVs and vans full of gear and and you, instead of waiting for someone to do it, you just rolled up your sleeves. You did it, Rhonda. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I did it on my own credit card. Um, and, you know, uh, about three, about a quarter of the way through it, um, Abby Hoffman made Hockey Canada recognize that this women's national event was going to occur. And Abby basically said to Hockey Canada, 
if you want funding, um, you, you better start paying attention to the women's game. So all of a sudden, Hockey Canada reluctantly stepped up to the plate and started supporting it. So, you know, we ended up having, you know, moving, moving forward with that. But it was, it was a challenge because, you know, Hockey Canada had all the, the rules and regulations and they were not going to let up. And we had, I was fighting against time and, you know, I had Hockey Canada at one side and I had the OWHA, which was being led by that gentleman who um, was not happy with, with my relationship with him. And I can tell you, um, I was very fortunate that it ended up being profitable and we, we ended up coming in on budget for the first time national event um, and, uh, because I would have been the scapegoat um, other, otherwise because everybody, everybody was very, I, sh I shouldn't say pessimistic, but it was a monumental challenge that we took on. And I had a great bunch of volunteers in Brantford, and we we just plowed ahead, and you know we kind of broke all the rules in running a national event. Um, but you know what? It happened, and and that's probably my proudest moment when I I you know I saw the championship game, and you know and and heard the you know heard the national anthem when we started it off. It was just it was just a, a, an incredible self-fulfilling prophecy for me. Speaking with Rhonda Lehman-Taylor of Trailblazer Women's Hockey in this country on all levels, the author of Offside, The Challenges Faced by Women in Hockey. I know that there is a Emily Castingay, the first female player agent in the NHLPA. Uh, they're starting to break barriers, but we do have a long way to go to really open it up for women in hockey in all levels. What advice do you give to women in, in both the management side, coaching side, and playing side to be strong and persevere and have the kind of resume career that you did, Rhonda? Well, um, in my book, I, 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 I wrap it up and I say, you know, I had my challenges. I, I carried the torch. I now pass it to you. Your challenges are going to be different, um, and, they, and they, they are different. But they, they, they have to stay true to the course. They have to, they, they have to, we know what the North Star is. We know that women want to be you know, um, a total reflection of, of the demographics of, of, of the women, women behind the male program. Um, we want to see that at the, at, at the management level. Um, they just have to remember, you know, the direction, the North Star, and, and, and keep striving to get there. Because every year at the Olympics, every time there's a Winter Olympics and women's hockey's on, the ratings are through the roof. And it's not all women watching. It's men and women and people of all sizes and shapes around the world who watch it and love it. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And, and the women's, game, women's games uh, between uh, Canada and the United States have had the highest ratings of any uh, Olympic, uh, Olympic event. And, and what's really interesting here is, here's a little bit of, a, of, of, a, of trivia for you, is that women's hockey was not in the Olympics um, until, until they went to Japan. And um, it was like, uh, I believe it was about three years in the making. And what happened was the Olympic um, Committee said there are not enough women in the Winter Olympics. So we need more women in the Winter Olympics. And the, the, 
committee then started taking a look at all the winter sports, and they said, ha-ha, you know, if we took a team sport like hockey or ringette, we probably could, you know, um, make, make this more fair. And they started looking at ringette and realized that ringette was not global. Hockey definitely is global. Like, the, it was amazing when I was working with Hockey Canada, that the, the grassroots movement, you know, the, 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 there's just so much energy at, at, at the grassroots movement. And that was happening around the world. So that's where we ended up getting the support, at get, getting the women women's into the Olympics. They sort of came into the Olympics in a, a, an awkward way, but they definitely have deserved the recognition that they're getting. You know, Rhonda, I, I look at your resume from the days of the Kingston Red Barons to Queens to being a, a, a groundbreaking trailblazer, uh, opening up all these avenues for the fact that we do have women's hockey at the Olympic level now, and it's such a huge success. And it's success after success for you in your life in hockey. What's the driving factor behind all of this? Well, you know, I, I, I my website, you saw my website. I'm switching my, if you were to go to my <laughs> new website, it's under construction, and it will be up by the time this show probably airs. And um, it's, it's called Offside, Making Her Story. And I, wanna, I just want to share all the stories of women that are, are breaking the barriers in, in hockey and other sports because we have so far to go and, and you know, j- just pay equity. You know, I, I, I hope in my lifetime that I see equal pay for, you know, equal 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 talent well Rhonda, i can say this that hockey is the great game that it is in this country because a woman like you i cannot thank you enough for all that you have done for hockey in this country and uh, taking the time to speak with us this has been a real privilege thank you oh it's been my pleasure all the best take care Rhonda. bye-bye after the break our celebration of international women's day continues follow us on twitter at 1059 the region Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer. A very special virtual celebration of International Women's Day. Tina Cortez with the details. Sundar Singh is the executive director at Elspeth Hayworth Center for Women with locations in North York and Vaughan. Hi, Sundar. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Tina. How are you? I'm good, thank you. It's great to hear from you again. So tell us a little bit about the center and the services you provide. Certainly, Tina. Elspeth Hayworth Center has been uh, in the community providing community services uh, since over 28 years. Uh, we have... Um, Programs delivered both in Toronto and in the city of Vaughan. Our core services are settlement services, helping newcomers who are coming to Canada uh, to settle here, uh, assisting them in finding employment. Uh, We provide services for women who are facing domestic violence as well, uh, mental and physical health programs for seniors who are enjoying their retired life. Um, and, and ensuring that uh, they are not isolated, uh, that they remain connected in the community. Uh, we also operate a social enterprise uh, providing language services to the hospitals across GTA. And the profits that come from the social enterprise, they go directly into the programs. So, Sundar, tell me about you personally, and why did you want to get involved in this centre and these types of programs? 
Um, the, uh, I believe that the women uh, in, in our society, they, uh, they need assistance, they need help. Uh, many of them who are in dire need of help do not come out uh, uh, asking for assistance. And this organization provides um, a home, uh, a center for these women uh, to, to come and express their needs, and we do everything to fulfill those needs. And this is my passion. Uh, right now, we are making a difference in the lives of 4,000 people uh, every year uh, through our services and through our uh, language services for the hospitals. So terrific to hear about the thousands that the centers have helped. Monday, March 8th is International Women's Day. On Wednesday, our very own Amber Pay is hosting a virtual event to celebrate. Sunder, what can you share about Wednesday's event? Uh, on March the 10th, uh, Tina, uh, the uh, Zoom uh, celebration will start at 9.30 a.m. And uh, the Elspeth Human Center will be celebrating its eighth annual International Women's Day. Uh, the United Nations theme uh, we will be celebrating is Choose to Challenge. The objective of Elspeth Human Center is to bring together people not only from all over Canada, Tina, but uh, people from other parts of the world to collectively impart the message of unity among genders across the world. Um, this would be possible through Zoom. Uh, this is going to be our first, first virtual Women's Day celebration. Um, so far, we are expecting about 200 people and more uh, on the morning of March the 10th. Um, we will choose to take the challenge to bring people together, collectively uniting to create an inclusive world. It is a, a challenging commitment, Tina, uh, which we can all choose to make a difference around the world. Um, I invite everyone to join us on Zoom on March the 10th at 9.30 a.m. Uh, let us celebrate together the achievements of women the world over. Well, it will certainly be different from previous years, and not only because it's over Zoom, because we cannot connect in person, but the message is always the same, though, isn't it, that we still have work to do? We certainly do. There's a lot of work to be done because we're making the, the changes a step at a time uh, all over the world. So... Um, during uh, this celebration, Tina, uh, we are going to hear from women from different parts of the world uh, in villages and small communities where shoulder to shoulder with their men folks, women are cha making changes in communities around them. Uh, you will hear from one of the clients of us that he was sent to tell her story. Um, our, key our keynote speaker, um, Esther Carmel, Maloney, uh, she will be talking about her experience, her exciting experience at the United Nations and how she's making changes at the grassroots level right here in the GTA. So it's very important that this celebration uh, in uh, the year 2021 uh, take place to, uh, to create that awareness of how women are making the changes uh, shoulder-to-shoulder uh, shoulder with men around the world. And is that why International Women's Day, do you think, is still necessary in 2021? 
I believe it is, especially now that we are going virtual, we are able to bring more people to join collectively uh, uh, to, to hear the message and then impart the message uh, amongst them, amongst their communities, uh, the, the cities, the countries. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it has become more important because um, uh, the message, uh, to get the message out in, in the community has become uh, easier. Where can our listeners get more information about the event or attend online on March 10th? The, uh, the, uh, the listeners uh, can send their RSVP to info at ehcw.ca or they can call 905-747-1515 to register so that we can send the Zoom link to them. Um, they can, of course, get the information uh, through um, the, the message sent out by 105.9, the region as well. And, um, uh, and, and uh, you know, we, we do encourage people to call us by phone so that we can register them and immediately send out the, the uh, uh, Zoom link. Okay, so one more time, it's info at ehcw.ca. And, Sunder, if you could just repeat the phone number for us. 905-747-1515. In our next story, Karen Johnson with a doctor's own diagnosis of young onset Parkinson's. International Women's Day is a day to honor and showcase women. Despite the trials and tribulations of life, women seem to excel and find that silver lining, creating a teaching moment for all. Dr. Sonia Mather is a family physician who resigned her clinical practice 12 years ago with her diagnosis of a young-onset Parkinson's disease at age 28. She's a dedicated wife, mother of three girls, a speaker, a writer, an educator, author, and a Parkinson's advocate. She speaks passionately about the challenges of adjusting physically and emotionally to a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease and the coping strategies available to many patients. Dr. Mather, and thank you for joining us to the feed today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Always been in awe of you. And I still remember the the day you told us about it, but I want to go right from the beginning. Tell me about the day you were first diagnosed with Parkinson's. What was that day like? So that was a long time ago, Karen. It was about 22 years ago, Mm -hmm. to be exact. And um, I was—I had basically noticed an intermittent tremor in my one of my fingers for about uh, on and off for a few months. But like all good doctors, I ignored it. <laughs> but it got to the point where it became more constant and concerning. So I went to a neurologist at, just at my local practice. I had just started a practice in. Oshawa, and uh, I decided that I should get checked out after my husband, Aaron, was Mm -hmm. persistent in asking me to do so. So I went into his office, and uh, he just performed a number of clinical tests, and he leaned over the desk, and he said, I think you have Parkinson's disease. Of course, I didn't believe him, and he offered me a second opinion, which I went for, and instead of um, telling me I didn't, they sort of confirmed that I I did. So it was young onset Parkinson's disease at the age of 28, and I was Mm -hmm. pregnant with my first daughter at that time, and had just finished his finished my residency in family medicine. So it's a rather inconvenient time for sure. Yeah, no kidding. When you first found out your diagnosis too, it's, it's not something you revealed to, to friends, but family knew. Why is it that you didn't want your closer circle to, to know what was going on? It's rather 
a complicated answer. It's no reflection of my friends. Uh, that's the first thing. It was more a reflection of myself. I, mm-hmm. I think it was for a number of reasons. One, I hadn't emotionally accepted the diagnosis. I was so young, so busy with everything else life had to bring my way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I hadn't emotionally accepted it as being part of my life. I just wanted to kind of push it aside and deal with everything else that I had to deal with, which included having two other daughters after my first. And the other reason is um, there is still a stigma associated with Parkinson's disease for whatever reason. I mean, I don't think there should be. But at that time, I didn't want to feel that people would believe that I was sort of less physically competent or mentally competent than I was before my diagnosis, which is Mm -hmm. completely untrue, of course. Absolutely. Um, And the other thing was, I didn't want a pity party. I wasn't the type of person that wanted people to say, you know, oh, I'm there, there, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, funny thing is, once I did reveal, all my friends, including you, just showed nothing but support. So it was really something I was worried more myself than was reality. So let's talk about taking it all in. How long did it take you that you decided that I now have to put my practice on hold or I'm not going to continue my practice? It took about a good 10 to 12 years. I mean, um, I got to the point where my symptoms were getting so bad and Mm -hmm. I I wasn't looking after myself. I wasn't taking the time to, you know, self-care and exercise and and attend my appointments regularly. Typical physician, typical uh, physician. Yeah, typical, exactly. (laughs) And, you know, I was getting other symptoms that were more bothersome, like no sleep and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And basically when I went to one of my appointments, my uh, movement disorder specialist looked at me and said, well, you're going to either walk out of your practice or you're going to crawl out. Mm-hmm. So it's up to you to decide what you want to do. And at that point, I recognized that I really needed to take time. You couldn't really do family practice part-time. I really needed to take the time. Otherwise, I wasn't going to be there for my family, which is the most important thing to me. Well, let's talk about that. You joined uh, the Patient Council for the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research in 2010, has served as a co-chair mm-hmm. for the last four years. How did you become involved with that foundation? How did you take that first step? I went to a charity event in New York. And they sat me at this table with this brilliant um, man named Bill Wilkins. And Bill is sort of a mentor of mine. He's an older gentleman. And when I, he was the first person I actually told outside of my circle of friends that I had Parkinson's disease. And he mm-hmm. leaned over and he said, well, young lady, welcome to the club. It's, it's an exclusive club, but we welcome you anyway. <laughs> He's been very, very much influential in my life. But he was part of the patient council that had just started at the Michael J. Fox Foundation. So he passed my name um, and interest on to the co-founder of the Fox Foundation, Debbie Brooks, and then she approached me to join. And uh, that I never looked back. It's been a wonderful experience being involved with them. They're just a, a really dedicated organization in terms of finding a cure for Parkinson's disease and, and supporting really innovative medical research. But that's just not enough for you either. You've recently co-founded the PD Avengers. What is that organization all about? The PD Avengers is our partners, friends, and we're sort of organized to see how we can change how the disease is seen and treated. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're trying to add urgency to research, wellness, and advocacy by uniting people and organizations to the cause of ending Parkinson's disease. And it's a global alliance, so equity and care is very important to us. Involving the patient voice in research is very important. And basically getting... um, um, power in numbers, I guess you would say, um, to, to lobby for advocacy and change. It sounds like a, a bunch of superheroes who I'm, uh, I'm very <laughs> delighted to, to hear about. It is, it's absolutely true. And so we take it now another layer. 
And you're the founder of Unshakable MD, which was initially created just to raise funds directed towards research and awareness of Parkinson's disease. And now you've taken this platform yet to another level. Tell our listeners a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah, it was initially set up to fundraise, but I quickly found out that I'm not a good fundraiser. I, <laughs> I don't like asking for money, even though it's, it's, you know, it is really needed for, mm-hmm. for Parkinson's research. I sort of devote my time and energy in other ways. Um, but Unshakable MD is basically based on the premise that the disease is what it is. The diagnosis we can't change, but how we face the challenges that the disease brings into our lives is really under our control. So it's all about living well with this, this disease. It's also about education. I mean, education is powerful, and it's necessary in Parkinson's disease for a number of reasons. Um, so it's about educating patients, teaching patients to live well with this disease, and really not just survive with the disease, but learn how to thrive with it. And so it's a, it's a set of educational blogs, personal blogs, because I think we, let, you know, we learn the most from listening to other people's stories so, and, and videos and that sort of thing. So it's um, my way of basically communicating with the, with the um, Parkinson's community um, and trying to, trying to share some knowledge that I've gained over the last 22 years. Well, talking about storytelling as well, you were able to tell your story in two books that you are the author of uh, My Grandpa's Shaky Hands and Shaky Hands, A Kid's Guide to Parkinson's Disease. What inspired you to write this? Like, you, It's not that you had time on your hands, but it's very interesting <laughs> to see how you've developed as an author and you've decided to write those two books. Uh, well, that, they're a, a direct result of my children. Um, mm-hmm. As you know, I've got three girls, and they've, they were all born after my diagnosis, so they've never really known me without Parkinson's disease or without sort of shaky hands. That's where the title comes from. Mm-hmm. But it, it became a project for us to do together. Um, so that, you know, the, the kind of development and the creative process was almost kind of a, a bonding and educational time for us as well. Because I recognized quite early in the process that kids fear what they don't know and what they don't understand. And oftentimes they will make up stories in their mind that are much worse than reality unless you, <laughs> unless mm-hmm. you talk about things and be open with it. And that's one thing I think is really important because Parkinson's disease is, is not just a diagnosis for the patient, it's a family disease, you know, it, it, it impacts everybody in the family and most certainly impacts children. So it was a, a way to us, for us to work together to create a project, but also uh, uh, to create a resource that other families could use in order to start to educate and open up the conversation and discussion about Parkinson's disease in a loved one. How can people follow you and your journey and, and purchase your books? Because I know a lot of our listeners probably have either parallel lives or, or even friends and family maybe experiencing this. How can they follow your journey and, and maybe uh, purchase uh, any of those books that you've written? People can follow me. Probably the easiest thing would be through my website, um, unshakablemd.com, and there you can sort of link to my different social media links, including Twitter and Instagram. Um, and that's where I put a lot of my links to other webinars and um, um, uh, journal articles and that sort of thing. And my blog is there as well. So uh, that's what you can do. I'm also on YouTube um, at unshakablemd. We have a channel there for some blogs that I've done as well. And the books can be purchased on Amazon. And just a, a, a mention about the books, I, I don't um, keep any of the profits. All the profits go back to the community, either for research or um, for um, community care projects. Perfect. 
Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Sonia Mather, on the feed today, and happy International Women's Day to you. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.